Welcome to African Tech Roundup, myth busting. These days, there's been much hullabaloo around, yes, crypto, but as of late, AI is getting more and more in the mix. We wanted to touch base with two leading thinkers in the AI and data space to uncover what's real, what's fact, and what's merely opinion. And let's face it, everyone has one of those. Well, I'm Kate Byrne, your host, Chief Impact Officer of Pop Venture, and joining us are Vessel Uwestazen, Associate Director, Cognitive Advantage at Deloitte Analytics, based in South Africa, and Jania Okwachime, Partner at Deloitte, West Africa, Data Analytics Leader, and she's based in Nigeria. Together, we're going to dive into the merits, potential pitfalls, and discuss the many ways to answer the question, is AI to be trusted? Let's find out. Welcome, welcome to African Tech Roundup. Hi, Kate. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Kate. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Well, what I always like to do is start with giving people the perspective of how the heck did you get in this space in the first place? So, Jania, why don't you fill us in? Sure. Looking back, my journey to, say, having a career in AI started probably two decades ago when I decided to go and study computer science. So I did my bachelor's degree in computer science and I ended up picking two courses, one of them called artificial neural networks and the other one image processing, which if you put together is like the basics of how nowadays AI can do interpret images and videos. And I got really interested. So I carried on to do a very specialized master's degree in there. I loved it so much. I ended up doing a PhD. So I spent four years of research and throughout those, what took about 10 or more years, we moved from AI to machine learning and fast forward to now data science. So the terminology has changed, but essentially it's the same thing. So I ended up doing research in computer vision, which is a branch of artificial intelligence where computers can interpret videos and images the way humans do. So I ended up doing some exciting work on face recognition, gender classification, pedestrian detection, which is now used in autonomous vehicles, as well as some medical image analysis, which is, for example, predicting cancer cells from medical images that sometimes is not very easy for the naked eye to see. So really exciting stuff. So when I graduated, I was like, I'm ready to go conquer the world, going to go to industry and, you know, do all these fascinating stuff. And then turns out I was in the UK at the time, unless you're in Google and based in their Mountain View office, there's nobody else that does anything like that. So very disappointed wow. that I spent so many years of my life doing this. I now have to just go get a job in the industries. So I, but I ended up been working as a consultant in this big data warehousing uh, company, which was a very leading uh, firm. So I had the experience of working in the UK, US and Asia Pacific, helping large organizations like banks to do lots of big data processing. So I was quite disappointed in myself for the first few months of my career thinking, have I wasted all my time? You know, nobody's doing this and I don't have the opportunity to go to US at the time. But years later, when I moved to Deloitte, I actually managed to see how now everything has shifted. You know, now all organizations have a lot of data and, you know, they are more interested in actually AI and machine learning becoming more mainstream. So when I was working uh, as an assistant director in the forensic technology in the UK, I just started by 
proposing to my team, why don't we actually use some of the stuff that I've learned in university to actually build something? So we ended up developing a machine learning model for technology-assisted review, which is how you can use natural language processing to analyze lots of data, including documents, because when it's investigation, litigations, lawyers have to read millions of documents. Can you actually use um, NLP to try and classify these documents automatically so that you can see what's relevant to the case, what's not. And at the back of that, we started doing some fraud analytics. And now fast forward to another few years, I lead data analytics in West Africa where things have moved across. You know, the, the market is open to AI and machine learning. And now we have a team of specialized practitioners who are going to market and delivering some of the solutions. So I kind of came full circle but I'm happy to be here and I combine my big data skills and AI background to be able to add value to our clients. So that's my journey. That's fantastic. I love your female pioneering spirit. We'll touch a little bit about that a little bit later in the conversation. Vessel, how'd you get to where you are? Yeah, I don't think it's as exciting as Yania's, but maybe a brief background. So I have always been fascinated with numbers and data and mathematics and how everything fits together. So it's it's always been a passion of mine from from school. So when I had to decide what to actually go and study at university, I decided let me do something a little bit different. And there's a course at one of the universities in South Africa that you I always say they kind of thought what can we throw into the mix? And, and that's how they came up with a, with a curriculum. But it involved everything from economics to statistics to IT to development, all of those things into, into one course, with a lot of the focus really being on the mathematics, statistics, and IT, and from a development or developer perspective. I studied that for a couple of years, and most of my friends ended up in the risk space at various different banks or insurance. And I really thought, I don't want to do that. Um, I want to do something different. I want to really pursue my passion of solving complex problems and making linkages between seemingly disparate points, data points, right? So that's how I landed up with Deloitte in their data analytics team about 11 or 12 years ago. And to Johanna's point earlier as well, I think when I started, a lot of the work that we really did was just getting a sense of starting to use data more effectively, starting to integrate data into each other, starting to do tests, starting to do these things algorithmically. But throughout my journey and throughout the last 12 or so years, there's always been um, in the back of my mind this passion of let's let's do something different. Let's do something a little bit out of the ordinary than just the normal business rules related tests. So we've always or I've always pursued a little bit more the innovation or the AI component and predictive and prescriptive analytics, even though I was more in a descriptive space at that point. Um, and about three, three and a half years ago, we really started a digital team within Deloitte with a focus on building cognitive and digital and AI solutions. All of it sounds very, a lot of words, etc. But in essence, it really is how can we help clients solve their problems by using intelligence and building it into a beautiful solution that they can use? And that's really where the AI portion sits. It sits at the heart of everything we do, at the heart of every solution we develop, at the heart of everything that we want to do. Across the spectrum from different industries, different components of AI, so 
the computer vision, but also then the predictive side of things, the asset maintenance, etc. So that's really been my journey up until now. And I've always said I'm one of the lucky ones that wake up in the morning and think I can't wait to get to work because I really enjoy it. I love solving problems. I love looking at things differently. I love looking at things and and really trying to figure out how are we going to solve this problem that just at that point looks completely unsolvable. And that's been my journey and absolutely loving every second of it. The thing that I love about that is you literally get to enter every single day with such a sense of wonder. And the first question you probably ask yourself as a response to that wondering is, what if, as in, what if we did this? What if we tried that? I also get a kick out of the fact that Deloitte has taken such a leadership role in this AI space. You know, I've had the opportunity um, and really enjoyed it to talk with Bina Amanath, who heads up the whole Global Institute, Global AI Institute, and her book, Trustworthy AI, is fantastic. And I really appreciate, frankly, I'm going to say the service work that you all are doing too, kind of helping people understand, you know, how do you navigate trust and ethics in AI, but also getting them more comfortable with it. So on behalf of the future of the world, I say thank you. I want to really jump into the technology. So I'm going to go straight to the bullet, the key question, and that is, why are you both so bullish on AI? You know, there's so many people, there have been recently, and we'll get a little bit into this in greater detail further down the conversation regarding, you know, the ethics piece, is AI going to take over the world, et cetera, et cetera. You are both very obviously brilliant, smart, sound, calm individuals. Why is it that it does not send a shiver down your backbone when you think of AI? Oh, I think it definitely sends a shiver down my backbone when I think of AI. I always think I wonder what my kids will be up to one day when they're big and going into the workplace, right? But on a serious note, I think AI is, it's such, it's a technology that can really transform the world, the way we look at things, the way we do things, the way we approach problems. I think we've come so far. If I look, just look the last hundred or so years, things that hundred years ago you would never have imagined that we'll have now, cell phones. I mean, having the probably uh, one of the best computers in your hand, well, maybe not the best, but such a piece of tech in your hand that you can do anything with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, that's completely unimaginable 100 years ago. Has that changed our world? It's changed our world completely. Did that send shivers down people's spines 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago? Probably. I can see my parents and my grandparents sitting there saying, I never want a device like that. That's going to ruin everything, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think it does send shivers down a spine, but I think what what makes it, for me at least, so such an exciting space is the opportunities and what we can do with it and where this will take us as a country, as a nation, as a continent, as a world, you know, because the opportunities are suddenly endless. The opportunities are exponential in what we'll be able to do with it, how we'll be able to use it on a day-to-day basis. Where will this end? No one, I think, knows for certain. I think there's a couple of quotes from from Gary, the chess master, that, that says, we all will become shepherds of algos. And I really like that because I think it's so true um, in the future. And that's also, I think, where a lot of the, the, the research, a lot of the forward thinking a lot of the next couple of years will go into in, in how do we actually become that so I, I think 
the shivers that get sent down my spine is very quickly put away by just the opportunities that I see and the, the opportunities for us as humans and for us as a country. And Wessel, if I can add to what you just said, I like really like that Shepherds of Algos because I think it still puts the focus and the shift on us and the responsibility on us to make sure whatever we build is responsible and you were the shepherds, you know, so that hence it, the myth buster of, you know, the robots are not going to take over the world. We still have to control them, manage them. So we, I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later, but I also wanted to add to why being bullish about AI, you know, in, in addition to all the exciting things you can do to me, it's almost a, a necessity. It's no longer a luxury. It's actually a necessity. If you look at the explosion of data, everything we do, we generate data, we send a message, we pick up the phone, we make a phone call, we send an email. We, I, I mean, we scan our IDs and, you know, send to our bank, everything. So we have the 90, 90% of the data that we have today was generated in the last two years. So you can now do the exponential growth and see in the next 10 years how much data we're going to populate. So you need algorithms of advanced algorithms like AI and data analytics and cognitive analytics to be, to be able to harness these and actually make sense out of all of that. There's no other tool that's going to help you go through all of that and actually understand what's going on. So, you know, you combine that with the availability of infrastructure and a lot of regulatory requirements coming together. All of that really makes it absolutely necessary. So this kind of modernization is no longer a luxury, but a necessity. Well, you know, two things. One, I've always thought that artificial intelligence was misnamed. And I always thought that word artificial, you know, makes a lot of people queasy. And it does sort of fuel that vision of the robots taking over the world, etc. And I think really what it is, is it's assistive or assistant intelligence, because that still puts the people who and the responsibility and accountability in the hands and minds of the people that are in fact building it and following and managing those algorithms. So I think that's been, frankly, a huge piece. The other piece is, do you believe that AI, and I would even say this is potentially true with, with blockchain and Web3 in general and all that it brings to us, to me, it seems like it is something of, or has the potential to be an equalizer, as it were, with regards to certain continents gaining ground. So I'm speaking to you from the U.S., and I agree with you. There's been an embracing of it in the African continent. And I'd love to hear a little bit, you know, some stories, too, from each of your respective areas and countries and how you're using it. But why is that? Is that because there's such room? And to your point, Jania, it's a necessity. It, it isn't that if we'll use it, it's a we have to use it because it's what's going to help us leapfrog and really get a stronghold in our future. You know, there's a general AI becoming mainstream. Yes, organizations are doing things, but there's certain things really born out of necessity. For example, if I'm looking at Nigeria. Financial inclusion is a big challenge or an opportunity, depending on what, which way you look at it, because, you know, there's 200 million population. I think it, it on average showed, is it a, a very, very small percent of the population is actually a banked population, which means right. they have access to a bank. Because if you consider a lot of individuals in the rural areas, in the villages, they don't, they don't have banks. They don't have uh, the traditional form of, you know, documentation and the credit portfolio, you know, the, the, the profile to be able to then have access to certain finance or credit. At the same time, they're businessmen and women, they're 
they're farmers and they just need a small loan to buy seed or you know equipment etc so i think organically one of the areas that is really i would say advanced compared to in the rest of the continent and the rest of the world in nigeria is the fintech and and in particular the microfinance banks because they're using technology such as ai they call it credit decisioning to be able to extend facilities to be able to extend small loans to these individuals who don't have the proper you know the traditional documentation who don't have access to come to the banks to open an account but they do have access to a not even in a smartphone but just a simple mobile phone that they can send and receive you know like USSD text and and so so the infrastructure has been put together so that the decisioning is made using AI to be able to see okay why don't you come and just start with us we'll give you a small loan and then if in six months time we we collect small small information that we can't get from you and within six months you have built like a, a certain pattern of behavior that we know about you and now we know you use mobile phone okay maybe you, we can get also history of your are you paying your you know how often do you top up or think these kind of things so you're bringing like different sources or like alternative sources of information all put together that can now help us portray a picture of who you are and we can extend this credit to you so that's something that's really popular here i'd say it's really well utilized when it comes to machine learning to help with the decisioning so i completely agree with your point of view on that vessel how about you i completely agree i think just looking at technology technology as a whole has got such a way to uh, to enable countries people continents to leapfrog others if you focus on it right and i think even more so with ai and even more so with the technology the latest technology that we have i think we've got from an african perspective we've got some of the most innovative people just purely because we have to you have to create something innovative to actually thrive in the african economies it's so small there's so many problems there's so many things we need to solve that other countries have might have already solved already and they don't need to worry about those things they can just go on with their business but i think from an african perspective that in a, that necessity to actually innovate continuously is something that would it's going to help us as a continent a lot in the next couple of years because it's it's the way in which you actually use ai to solve problems right you need to think innovatively you need to think a little bit different you need to also bring in the diversity of different cultures different people different languages different ways of thinking into it otherwise what ai will just be is the most data that we've got on a specific topic right right so you need Africans to actually solve the African problems and I think and not just African problems but in a large degree the world's problems right just purely from the diversity that we have from African continent I think we're perfectly positioned to actually take the mantle to actually do something with it and to take it grab it use all these different aspects that we have and all these intuitive and ways of thinking and diversity that we have and actually use it to our benefit. I think we're perfectly positioned. I've said it for a number of years and I'll I'll keep saying it until it happens and maybe I'll speak it into existence. But I truly believe that we're perfectly positioned to actually do that. Just not just from the opportunity that it, that there is, but the way that we think, the number of people, the nun- number of youngsters that we have, that's actually coming through, that's that's growing up, that's the age and the population and the demographics. I think it's a massive, massive opportunity for us as Africans to really leapfrog a lot of the 
things that we can and a lot of the economic benefits that can come with it. And you're seeing it as well. You're seeing startups from Nigeria and from Kenya and from South Africa and from other areas within within the African continent really playing with, let's call it the big boys. So Johnny, I mentioned Google and Facebooks of the world earlier, but you're seeing a lot of these guys actually playing in that space. And you would think, well, these are five 20-year-old something something sitting in Cape Town or Lagos or Nairobi how can they compete with Silicon Valley and how can they compete with China and how can they compete with the world and the reality is they are they're not just competing they're beating them um, in, a, in a lot of instances and that's what really excites me about where we are where I am at least from a African perspective seeing that innovation seeing that different ways of work that different thinking and seeing how in my day job, working with different clients across Africa and helping them solve their problems, seeing how many times we come back to, this is a solution that we can use that's built in South Africa or in Kenya or in uh, the African continent that's now being used globally. Um, and some instances, people don't even know it. They'll use solutions that was built locally without even, well, in Africa, that, and they wouldn't even know it because they've got US operations or American or Europe operations, etc. But I think we do ourselves a disservice sometimes where we always think you have to be at Google to actually get this, or you have to be at Facebook or the Apples, et cetera, of the world. I think it's a massive, massive opportunity for us. I have long said also that to me, two continents, South America and Africa, will be the ones who will have the last laugh. One for resources, one for really true innovation and innovative thinking based on their lack of resources. So I'm really excited for you all to be able to teach the rest of the world how to think and how to view problems, or I'm going to say challenges, right? And this notion of experimenting, because for a long time, it started to me in the telecom and, and then it went into mobile banking. So what are some other industries you think that could really benefit from, you know, active embracing of AI? I know we've talked about, you know, fintech, et cetera, but is there something in, I don't know, that impacts climate or supply chain management, that sort of thing? What if, is there, you know, are there certain companies that you've seen in or challenges or applications that you've seen in your walks that you've really been impressed by? I think from from our perspective, and it's probably purely because we've got such a rich history in the mining sector. I think I found really exciting things happening within the mining sector across the value chain of mining, not just looking at the supply chain, but looking at the process, looking at how we actually identify where to mine, how to mine, how far deep we need to go, what's the best area. The supply chain is one component of it, but I think generally, for me at least, the, the mining sector is a sector that I think a lot of the times in, in, in Africa is still very focused on manual labor, very focused on physical labor, etc. And there's a massive opportunity for us to actually take that, redesign it, relook at it. And I'm saying that specifically redesigning it and relooking at it, not taking what we have and trying to make it better, but reimagining what that m might look like in the next five or 10 or 20 years. Yes, I think ESG and climate change, it's massive opportunities for us from an African perspective. And I know that there's lots of work actually happening in that space to really understand what is the impact of of climate change on the population of, of wildlife across the African continent. I mean, there's there's so many applications where you can 
use AI to to help, whether it is counting um, and doing doing counts, which is a really simple example, but doing counts of just how many pairs of endangered species are there? How do we protect these endangered species through the use of AI? How do we assess and test what the impact of something like climate change is? Because those are really the the areas of our of the world that I mean they don't have any any say. They can't pack up their house and move to a different country or move to a different place. It it doesn't work like that for them. They're kind of stuck in the parks or in the areas that they that they can get to, right? So how do we and I, and I think there's lots of opportunities for us to really identify the impact first of all that that, that it's got on wildlife in general. Secondly, the impact that that we and how do we, how can we mitigate that for them and how can we mitigate just the role that that climate change has had or the impact that climate change has had on them. But then also, I think Africa has always been a mining rich continent right and how do we ensure that we're responsible in the way that we mine in the way that we mine sustainably and the way that we after we've mined how do we make sure that we rehabilitate that area or that that component or that space and all of this can be done through simulations through ai through advanced technologies for counting for modeling through the use of to a large degree, simulations and digital twins using AI as a, as a base. I mean, the, the, the opportunities are really endless. Thanks, Wes. So I, I really like the examples that you gave. I think I was to add a couple of other things to that in terms of opportunities and what we actually see start to see as applications of AI. I particularly find the, first of all, automation everywhere. I think that's going to be still the, the, the biggest application because it just makes everyone's lives easier and makes everything more efficient but to add to that there are some other things that especially some of the industries like the oil and gas industry the energy industry or manufacturing that could really benefit from ai is safety analytics or how you can use ai to actually prevent accidents you know a lot of you know workers go to these remote locations they are supposed to be wearing safety equipment and gears but you know we're humans one day you decide hey, you know, I I just can't be bothered to put my hard shoes on or my hats that's supposed to protect me. So, you know, by monitoring, you're actually able to see that people are not wearing their safety equipment and gear and you can prompt them just to remind them, you know, just simple nudging, you know, based on nudging theory, we're all wanting to do the right thing, but just certain circumstances, we just don't do it that way. So these kind of little nudging uh, behavior induced by AI technologies can actually help us you know, help us reduce fatalities, which then again goes into the bigger sustainable business and sustainable environment. In addition to that, also intelligent maintenance schedules, you know, instead of sending someone to go to a remote oil rig or like a power plant to fix an equipment or just do regular maintenance every month, you can actually be able to bring in some metrics based on the usage, the heat, you know, any incident and be able to predict when you're supposed to next go in for servicing. So you're actually saving that potentially dangerous trip to those areas to be able to do that maintenance. But one other area that I'm particularly passionate about is education technology and how AI can really play a role in that. We see nowadays, I mean, my kids are doing things online, which scares me as well. Sometimes like, yo, Wessel, I'm thinking, gosh, what's the world going to be like when they are like our age? But, you know, everyone, like a lot of schools and universities are using these platforms to to teach and deliver their, their training material. 
But we also know that each child is not the same. You know, somebody has a different way of learning while somebody is better when something is explained to them, while the other one does better when they do more hands-on and practical. We can actually leverage all the data that is collected based on these platforms and do the analytics at the back end. And we can actually personalize the education experience for children. If you can see that this child has been interacting with certain components of the platform, you can predict that they're more likely to respond better to a certain way of education than the other. So that's something that I'm really excited about and I'm passionate about. And I see that our, uh, we were talking about how you know, we have these young startups in Africa. We do have a couple of education startups and uh, that are doing similar to this. And I'm really proud that Deloitte is also partnering with them and helping with them. And as our CEO mentioned, problems in Africa will only be solved by Africans. And, you know, this sort of purposeful impact that we have. And we so I look forward to see where we get with these education technology startups in the next few years. So that's that would be my take on this. I wanted to add two more things. And I, I think then we've probably covered all the different sectors. But equally, if you think about agriculture and the issues that Africa have, has faced with agriculture. I mean, we've got so, so much agricultural land. There's so much that we can do with it, but there's constraints. There's the small-scale farmers that don't know that maybe doesn't have all the ed- education of years and years and centuries of passing along the information. How do we enable them through the use of AI to actually farm better, increase their crop, increase their yield rates, know when to d- do what they need to do, when to spray when to harvest, etc. I mean, that's a it's such a it's a massive opportunity for for Africa as a whole. And then the last comment I'll make is in the health sector as well. Again, in in Africa, we don't necessarily have all the different the built out infrastructure than some of the first world countries have. You've got guys and and people living in areas remotely where it it literally takes a day or two to get to them, regardless of the roads or lack of roads or uh, in how to get to them, etc. It it takes a while to actually get to those individuals, and there's a massive opportunity I feel to actually put the power of just as an example of a brain surgeon sitting somewhere with massive intelligence and putting the power of that knowledge into the hands of someone actually sitting in far off hut in in Africa somewhere and being able to actually tap into that intelligence and knowledge to help people from an African perspective, from a healthcare perspective as well. So the, the opportunities are really there to to take across the different sectors Africa. And we're seeing startups coming online. We're seeing across the board on all of these things where it's guys helping for small-scale farmers. It's guys helping from a medical perspective, helping putting good quality medi- medication and good quality medical services into the hands and um, and, and in, of people in far-flung places where they, in previous times, didn't have access to, to medical attention or, or that level of medical experience. I love these examples, and it puts into my mind a couple of things. One, I love the idea of global intelligence and then, frankly, putting the power back into the local hands and having each respective continent going down to the country, going down to the village for that matter, wherever we are, actually empowering them to come up with their solutions because they're living the problems real time. I have a question for you both. And because we all have been thinking about our kids 
And, you know, we all have, right now, we're all working with next generations who are all digital natives. So do you think that our kids will now be something of AI natives? And how will that change, you know, their world, their work life, that sort of thing? And frankly, how they view and embrace technology and data moving forward. Will they be more open-minded or will they be more cautious, do you think? So I think those are my thoughts, my personal views. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it goes a bit beyond just, you know, AI and technology, more of a philosophy and based on what I've noticed. But in terms of whether they are, you know, they are fluent users of AI already. My four-year-old, or when, since he was two, he'll be like saying, Alexa, play Baby Shark. Alexa, play Baby Shark. And he doesn't know that Alexa is just another, you know, AI algorithm that uses natural language processing to understand what he's saying and go and sift through these database of songs and then play Baby Shark. So they, they are going to naturally be using this without even knowing that they're using it. So that's like, it's going to be second nature to them. But, but in terms of what is it going, what's the impact of that going to be on them in terms of are they going to be more open-minded or are they going to be more risk sort of, you know, cautious that's a really, I guess, the, the I, I'm just really trying to think out loud, but I'll tell you examples of how I feel yep. and then let's try to see how my child will feel. So just even since 10 years ago, as soon as I knew what kind of data is being collected of me, and I clearly know being in the data profession and, you know, knowing what AI can do to use my data to make predictions, I stopped being very active on Facebook because I know the minute I do something, it's going to use my data to now start to push all these marketing advertisements and everything to me. So I was like, do I need to give them this data? I don't want to. So I almost do not consent to a lot of these things unless I know exactly what's being used for. However, whereas a friend of mine who's, who wasn't really into technology at the time, they would, you know, happily do things and they'd be like, oh my God, Johnny, can you believe I just got engaged and Facebook is advertising wedding rings? And I'll be like, duh. Why do you think that is? Because you change your status to engaged and you know all this information is being collected. So now for our kids, they may not have that kind of worry that I do because I grew up in a world that this didn't exist and now I know the impact of that and what's being collected because they've naturally started using that. But I think it's still it's inevitable. It's going to be there everywhere. But I think it's the responsibility of us as parents to guide them and inform them that this is what's happening. Just in the same sense that, you know, now regulators are trying to actually put something in place and educate, you know, the public and the organizations on the effective use of AI, right? So together with all the other cautions of being in the online world, you also need to know the kind of information you're giving and the kind of things that that can be used for. But at the same time, what I worry about, and I don't have an answer for that either, is that, you know, with this whole moving to the metaverse and all of that, I've already started to see differences in personality in some of the young, you know, members that or, or other acquaintances. When I see them in person, their personality is completely different from when I see them on their Instagram page. It's like they have a completely different virtual persona. And they're a lot more confident. They can do things. And, you know, they, they are a young entrepreneur. They're promoting their products. They're talking about all their views. But when you see them in person, they barely have anything to say. Like, they're not really making conversation. And to me, it is a bit worrying, you know, being a bit more traditional that you still need to have that people skills to engage. 
But, you know, I think about it like somebody could tell me that you're not very good in social media. You don't have that kind of skills and everything is now online. So, you know, it's like it can go both ways. So I think hopefully our kids will learn the balance because they're not growing in this world. And perhaps they will build their own way of socializing on and offline that will make sense to them. But we should still, as parents, be careful and cautious and really teach them about the, the to-dos and not-to-dos of this online world. It's such a tricky question because I think, to to Jonia's point, we grew up knowing what the other side of the coin looked like. Would kids embrace it? Absolutely. I can't see our kids not using AI. And, and again, I think in 90% of the instances, they won't even know that there's AI being used in the back end to unlock the phone to make a call to search through random database for songs i think it's going to be there i think it's inevitable i think from a risk perspective it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it gets better and sometimes i like to make the analogy it's kind of like when we built cars and when cars became mainstream right everyone started to use it because it just makes our life so much easier then people realized well there's actually a risk here that you can die if you're in a car crash or if something happens when cars just came out you wouldn't use a car if you don't know exactly how it worked i mean everyone knew how it worked before they actually started to use it whereas these days don't ask me how a car works inside out i don't have a clue i just get into the car and i press the the pedals and i and there i go but i use it and i use it on a daily basis and it's made my life 100 times better than it would be for example without it but at some point we realized that we need to actually build safety mechanisms in place. We need to take a little bit of a step back and not worry about going 500 miles an hour on the highway and actually thinking about safety and thinking about the impact that this will have. And I think in some way AI is going to be similar. We're at the phase where we want to use it and we want to see it and we want to get to the possibilities and use it as much as we can. I do think there's going to be a couple of instances where there will be massive repercussions or there will be safety issues or there will be ethical issues that's going to come out. And we've seen some of those already, but I think we're going to see more and more of that before we get to the point where we actually take a step back and we think through how do we use it? What's the approach we take when we use it? Regulations maybe around when you can and when you can't use it. And we're seeing signs of that already, but I don't think that's that's mainstream yet. But from a kid's perspective and from a future perspective, they're definitely going to use it. it. It will really just be how soon can we get and how quickly can we get to the space where we can ensure that the way in which we use it is safe, not just physically, but mentally safe for kids, safe for for the community as large, um, and it's ethical. The last thing all of us want is another massive technology push and there being ma massive ethical issues with it and only for 50 years later to realize what we did was actually quite wrong and we shouldn't have done that. I think it's our responsibility, having, been, having lived through a lot of world wars and a lot of things that happened, it's our responsibility to actually think a little bit forward and make sure that the way in which we use it is ethical, it's safe, it protects, it builds rather than it destroys. And I think that's a massive responsibility for us. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in many ways, as we're talking about this, AI becomes something of a bridge to people getting comfortable with the whole notion and really activating and bringing the potential power of what will be, you know, of what is Web3 to life. 
in so many, in so many ways. Now we've been sort of dancing around it. So we're kind of, now we're talking a little bit in, in ethical, in ethics and morality land. And I, I know that as of late, especially within, I think it's been only the last, oh my God, week, we've probably seen a lot of writings about the bots going bad and how all of a sudden, most recently, it was Meta's bot that was discovered to be incredibly, you know, became a racist in over a weekend. So, and I know Amazon has had this issue. Google has had this issue. And also, who are we having build them? And is there a way that, you know, how do we stop that? Because to your point, one of the things that blockchain, Web3, AI, and all of this is going to require extraordinary trust whenever you're starting and dabbling in the utilization, embracing of adoption of a new technology. It takes trust and knowing, hey, we're going to get some of it right, some of it wrong. But some of this wrong is egregious. So from a data standpoint, how can we fix this? How can we get ahead of this? How can we figure out from a predictive standpoint, is there a way we can? Vessel, why don't you start with that one? Sometimes you kind of have to learn what the faults are in the system before you can patch over them or fix them, right? And we don't we don't always know what those are. I think we've seen with a lot of these chatbots that's gone racist and et cetera, et cetera. It started off a couple of years ago and no one thought that it would happen and suddenly the the chatbot over the weekend or twenty-four hours became racist. The meta one is a good example where they've actually taken a little bit of a different approach and they've they asked you as they ask you as a human to click a button to say that you're not going to do um, malicious things with this or teach it racist comments etc cetera, etc cetera. so we've we've already learned from past experiences in some way have we got there yet i don't think so i think it's great to say to have disclaimers in that says you tick a box and you say i know that this is research purposes and i know that we're still beta and it's still building it and i won't do anything funny with it but all of us are humans all of us naturally would would try and test the boundaries all of us would naturally try and test where this will end up and i think that's kind of the problem we're sitting with from a from an ai perspective is the data that's out there uh, how do we how do we really clean that and make sure that the data we use in order to train these solutions or bots in this case specifically how do we make sure that the data that we use is diverse that it's not just a certain category of people and there you've got massive issues with access to the internet because you'll have large communities large countries that's got all of all, everyone in the country has got access to to the internet and then you'll have other countries that doesn't have any access to the internet so you immediately sit with a database that's not really representative of let's call it the world or the world's views and that's a massive issue it's a massive issue for us to that that we need to solve as practitioners have we solved it i don't think so but those are the kind of i guess conundrums that we're sitting with i think the fact that we are starting to identify that ethics and trustworthy AI and all of that is an issue and we need to be mindful of that. I would love to see every single course of AI um, instead of always it being tech, but that there's a massive ethical component to it. And I think that component needs to come through more and more and more. You can't have AI practitioners if you don't think about the ethical 
considerations in any solution that we build, whether that's a predictive maintenance solution, whether that's an automation solution, whether that's a chatbot, whether that's a self-driving car, it doesn't really matter. You need to really think about the ethical issues and the ethical conundrums of the outcomes of some of the decisions that you're algo and that your solution would make at the end of the day i don't think we've solved it yet i think we've still got a long a long way to go but i think we're taking the right steps in actually identifying it making people aware of it i do think we need to do more i think there's massive amounts of work to make sure that it's representative across countries and across the world but there's there's massive amount of work for us to to do in that space yeah shania anything to add just to add to the last bit of what Wessel said as well, when you look at the chatbot and you, you've already put that in the hands of the, the public to do testing, you know, we can, maybe that's a really big one and we, we haven't quite solved that. But if you actually internalize it at organizations who are starting to build AI models, ML models, they can actually start to put the right framework and processes in place to start to address some of these risks very early on. So that as we're building things, we're deliberately and intentionally putting frameworks around it to test for some of these biases and to stop them from happening right at production. Because if you think about it, developing an AI product, it's still developing a product and there are till, till date a lot of straightforward or established frameworks for doing quality assurance on products because this is a standard thing. What now needs to happen is that you can't just put that through into an AI product because there will still be so many aspects that you wouldn't have taken into account. So organizations need to actually deliberately and intentionally start bringing an AI risk framework that can look at some of these biases. Look at your data. Are you giving it data that's already building bias? Especially that most of these tools end up being used as a black box, right? Which is why transparency is important. Again, the reg from the regulators, they are now demanding more of the transparency to understand actually what is happening. Because simple, you know, examples again, for example, consider that credit risk. Say I'm the analyst who develops that credit decisioning and I broke up with my girlfriend yesterday and I'm, I'm upset with the whole world. I'm angry at all women. And I, I'm going to put a clause in there that says if the applicant is a woman, reject the application right away. And I wrap it up in this nice little black box and I put it into production. If the organization doesn't have oversight on this, without knowing they're rejecting all their female applicants and they are bringing that bias into the market, which is why it's very important that all of these things are actually put into the framework. So models being developed going forward are consciously trying to stop some of these risks and ethical risks that comes with AI. Each of you opened up with the notion that AI has got extraordinary power to help solve global level problems. And as people are developing these solutions, as they are with any of these global technologies, I hope that inventions in the future, innovations in the future, that people will take it to heart and they will really treat it as and adopt this global ethos of sharing the learnings from both their successes and their missteps so that, you know, we can help to your point, Jania, make sure that people are actually moving forward and not repeating the same problems so that 50 years from now, we actually wake up and say, ah, oh, we actually knew that such and such company actually had already discovered that. So I really, I think that there's a great opportunity for, for AI and Web3, and that's the power and the robustness of it, is for us to really share learnings 
and make sure that we as a, frankly, (laughs) as a species are helping each other move forward as opposed to looking at it at some kind of competitive uh, one-upsmanship as it were. But, you know, Jean, as a woman in this space and a pioneer, I I would love it if you would talk a little bit about where you see the opportunities lying, if they do, in fact, in Web3 and blockchain and and especially AI for women to take a a role and, and how to get involved in that. I think the answer to that is yes, absolutely yes. And it's even a bigger yes when you compare to my experience about two decades ago when I entered this field. I was always the either the only person like doing computer science. I was either the only girl in the class or one of the two out of say thirty, and that continued when when I when I went to industry or to do a PhD to a point that they actually during our research office they made sure my desk wasn't the one right next to the door because it was such a male dominated field that everyone would automatically assume I'm the secretary. Anyone's entering into the room, they would think I'm the room secretary, not that I'm a research fellow in the department. So fast forward to today, that is not true at all. So over the years, I have made it, you know, sort of my mission to always talk to women in colleges, in schools, to tell them about, you know, how fascinating it is to get involved in the areas of technology, math, science, etc. And I still continue to do that. Last year, actually just before COVID, I was the keynote speaker at this uh, Ladies in AI event, which is organized by Data Science Nigeria. So the fact that there is actually a whole group called Ladies in AI, it means there are more initiatives now and and women are really interested. And when I look at the, the team that I lead, I have now majority female in my team and everyone is doing data analytics and data science. So, so there's, uh, I'm so happy to see that there's clearly that drive that women are really stepping up and really embracing the, the technology and specifically AI. So definitely there's opportunities there and these are the, the, the future leaders. And so when they start at this step at this age, in the next five to 10 years, they're going to be the ones who will be leading it. So I'm really happy to say that at least here in Nigeria and West Africa, I see that that is there's clearly a huge female involvement in this. And, and what do they need to do? I think just continue doing, you know, continue doing what they're doing. Like women traditionally have always, uh, statistics have shown in school, they've, they've actually done really well in terms of academic results. But where they were lacking was that confidence to actually go out there in the industry and build the same career as their male counterparts. A lot of us females were very or too familiar with the imposter syndrome where we keep second guessing ourselves and questioning like, am I am I really supposed to be here? Am I really like, are they trusting me with this? Can I do it? And and it doesn't stop. I still feel that way sometimes. I'm like, oh, I'm really doing this. I'm really, you know, so we have to really stop asking those questions or having self-doubts and really standing up to to say that, yes, we can do this. And, and also another thing that's been proven is that when applying, for example, for a similar job, as a, as a woman, you look to see that you meet 100% of the criteria. And if you meet 90%, you tell yourself, oh, I'm not good for this. Whereas a male counterpart, even if they fit like 50% of the criteria, they're like, yep, I got this. Let's let's do this. So it's more of that mind sh- mindset shift. And I'm, I'm happy to see that there is a lot of women coming through and, and a lot of women really active in this. So I think it's very positive. Terrific. And Vessel, how about you? 
How would you suggest people, if they're interested in getting into this, because there's a lot of different entry points, what would you recommend? I think there's so many opportunities to get into it and so many areas where you can actually learn and teach yourself, right? There's the Udemy of the world, there's Coursera, there's cloud training, there's online training through different various options, universities, colleges, etc. For me, I think the biggest and the most important thing is find a solution or find a problem that you're passionate about. Find a way to solve that through the use of coding or AI or whatever the case might be and use that as, let's call it your capstone project and let that guide you. Yes, you need to be able to code and yes, you need to be able to get to know the technical components of it. But in my view, I think the best way to actually do that is take one of those courses that you can find online, pick one, there's hundreds of them, take one to to understand what is coding, how does it work, what is AI, how does it work, but then make it practical and make it practical really fast. I think what we're seeing in industry is a lot of guys have got theoretical knowledge of theoretically how things should work or what it should do or what it shouldn't do. And it's all great, but the practical application and the practical solutions and the practical experience is in my view at least where the real rubber hits the road and where you learn at the end of the day the most it's how we train most of our guys it's how most of us have trained and i think it just gives you so much more understanding of the problem so much more breadth but also depth of the problem and the complexities you'll face and a lot of the times those are things that you can't think of if you just randomly take a very clean data set from the internet, you'll get a great model and you'll think you're doing fantastic. But take a real life example, take a real life model, take real life data and try and build it through that because it's in that that you'll see the ethical issues, the the boundaries, the making sure you get the right results, thinking through how you handle those data elements and those data points, thinking through how you solve it with the limited data that you've got available. I think that's really where my suggestion would be, pick a problem, pick an area from a coding perspective that you want to go into, but then very soon after that, pick a problem and solve it using using that tech technology skills that you've got. Well, fantastic. I just want to say, honestly, Vessel Jania, thank you both so much for your generosity, both in your, your wisdom, your experience, your thinking, but also really the leadership that you're taking as we bridge this next frontier together. And I say that we all have a reunion in a year and we see how everything's turned out thus far. Sounds good to me, Kate. I like that. Thank you, Kate. All right. Thanks a lot for having us. It's been a pleasure. It's been amazing. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks so much. Look forward to the next conversation with African Tech Roundup.